Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. So it moves on into the life of Moses and the fact that he would, like Moses, if you know his story, if you don't know the stories in these portraits, go back and read them this week. But that little baby is rescued out of that basket. It's a fascinating story. And he's rescued by the king's daughter who finds him. And then she takes him and raises him as her own child. So he's raised in the house of the king. So he goes from being like like, uh, a lowly Hebrew child to being raised as as the, the king's grandson. But then when he gets old enough to embrace his Israelite identity, he, he, he walks away from his Egyptian security. It's a picture of he doesn't lean into what this world provides materially, philosophically, in terms of comfort. He's willing to walk away from that because what faith does is it drives, one thing that's important to understand, faith always drives us towards God's redemptive plan of the gospel. It's not just that we accept and embrace the gospel. It's that we want to be a part of what the gospel is doing. True, active Christian faith is not just, I believe for salvation. It's that I believe for salvation, and now I'm on mission to advance that gospel. So you see the action that Moses was taking. I also think for parents, there's a really good picture here of his parents' rate, like his parents' active faith what that must have meant for Moses and his siblings when they would talk about it later. You know, as parents, there's a good lesson that, especially if you have younger children, your faith, that how active your faith is, is gonna, is gonna have a, a, a huge bearing on the way their faith forms. They're, because you're not, like you can't save your kid. You can't like get your kid baptized or take him to church enough that like you can't transfer your like salvation. And years ago, I got a. I got, all right, if you're not from here, welcome to the mountains. I, I bought a suppressor. If you don't know what a suppressor is, it goes on a firearm and it makes it silenced. It's like silences it. But there's this huge process you have to go through with the federal government to get it. And when I went through the process, paid for the. Um, you have to buy this. This basically like a license. But then it has to stay in your possession. And it's non-transferable. But you can put it into a trust, and then it can be transferred to your estate and then, and then like, passed through the will. It's a crazy bunch of hoops to jump through. And I remember thinking, salvation cannot be transferred under any circumstances. Like, every person's faith is their personal issue between them and God. And so, but as parents, we can lean into the promises of God that if we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but also living our lives by faith, that God's going to use that example. And we see, I think you see some of that with Moses and his family. Verse 26 says, uh, says that, that, you know, he, he basically was willing to be persecuted to abandon the wealth and treasures of Egypt. Whatever the world offers is temporary. Uh, and, and, the, and, and what Moses was striving for was a greater treasure. Now, verse 27, I want, this is the verse I really want to zero in on. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who see, 
as one who sees him who is invisible. Read that again. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. So I love verse 27. It's one of the greatest messages that we see like throughout the book of Hebrews is the idea that the believer is going to persevere. And Moses persevered, ultimately seeing Jesus with his own eyes. A great wonder of our faith is that one day our faith will be sight. We live by faith now, but it is not eternal faith. It is current temporal faith that has eternal repercussions and implications. It is a temporary faith that will give way to an eternal substance, an eternal reality. Moses lived by faith. But his faith is now sight. He has now beheld the one that was invisible in his life. And we will all one day behold the one who is invisible. Verse 28. By faith, he's instituted, by faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land when the Egyptians attempted to do this. They were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So more portraits. So we looked at the portraits of Moses. Now there's more portraits. These are associated with Moses. So Moses acted in faith when he smeared the blood of the doors of the, over the doors of the Israelite people. So the Passover was an act of faith. The Red Sea crossing was an act of faith. Imagine the faith it took to walk down to that, like the Red Sea, with the entire Egyptian war machine bearing down. You see these examples. The faith is moving forward, even though they don't know where they're going to go from here. You go back and read that story, and there's this moment of panic. where They're facing the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's bearing down on them. And then by faith, God delivers them through the Red Sea. Jericho fell and was taken by faith. For seven days, the Israelites obeyed the Lord, marching around the city. And then Rahab's rescue was by faith. She declared that the Lord was the giver of salvation. She put her faith in him, and she was rescued. But the men who rescued her were also acting in faith and obedience to the Lord. The Passover provided salvation. The Red Sea provided salvation. The march around Jericho provided salvation, and Rahab's rescue provided salvation, and that through Jesus, because Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho who became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Rahab was the mother to, to Boaz, who was the father to Obed, who was the father to Jesse, the father of King David. Rahab would become the great-great-grandmother of King David, the one whom God would make a covenant promise and say, I'm going to send one in your line who will sit on a perpetual throne that will never end. He's talking about Jesus. Rahab's deliverance by faith was all about Jesus. Faith is always about Jesus. It's, for, for the believer, it's about driving us towards Jesus and the work of Jesus. Verse 32. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped 
the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign enemies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. These are more stories of people who were not perfect and who oftentimes are better known for their failures than their successes. So you list this group of people here. It's like, you know, you go, you could go through that list. Something I'll encourage you to do. I did this this past week in preparation. I read the stories of each of those people. So like I went back and read the story of Gideon. You know, the story of Gideon is Gideon was this young guy from this really obscure family in the smallest tribe in Israel and they were poor and God called him out to lead Israel to freedom against an opposing and oppressive enemy. And the story of Gideon is a really crazy story, but one of the things that kind of glares back at you is Gideon's doubt, and then Gideon doesn't finish strong. He kind of goes off the rails at the end of his life. And then you've got uh, a mention of a guy named Barak, and I don't know if you remember the story of Barak, but Barak was like this, he was like a mighty man of valor, and this lady named Deborah is judging the Israelites, and she's sitting in the position of judge. before the time of the kings where God ruled with judges. She goes to Barak, and she's like, I want you to put together, uh, you know, put, put together a mission and go against our enemies. And he's like, uh, I'm only going to go if you'll go. And she's like, oh, this is really funny because she's like, okay, well, I'll go, but you just need to know the Lord's going to deliver the enemy into the hands of a woman. And she like talk, you know, like prophesies and this, sure enough, this woman delivers Israel. So Barak is known for this moment of, you know, the judge of Israel, Deborah says, lead my people. And he's like, okay, but will you go with me? And it's like, that's more what he's known for. It doesn't look like faith. It doesn't look like bold faith. You got Samson. What is Samson most known for? Probably the fact that he failed to be the man of God that he could have been. Uh, and, and even in, in the fact that in the last act of Samson's life, by faith, God uses him to deliver Israel. So he, he's laying out these portraits. The guy Jephthah, you see the name Jephthah? Jephthah's the guy who like basically sacrificed his own daughter by making a rash vow to God so that he could go have this military deliverance. So it's cool because, I mean, not cool, it's not the word, it's, there's layers and depth to these examples and portraits because, because what he's doing, I think, is he's laying out a list of people. Every one of us can identify with different aspects of these examples of faith. Like you go back and you look at, last week we saw Joseph as an example. We study the life of Joseph He's just faithful. Like we don't see these, like we don't see moments of faithlessness with Joseph. I'm sure they were there, but he's faithful. Gideon, train wreck. Jephthah, rash vow. Barak, knees shake in the moment of battle. Like, so we've got these examples where you can go, okay, I can identify with this guy. Samson pursued the pleasures of this world and abandoned his faith and God's will for a season. I can identify with that. I mean, ultimately, he uses these people as examples of faith because every one of them, when it came down to the ultimate act of obedience, they did it. And a lot of them, it cost them their lives. So he's given us these examples that we can study. I would encourage you to study them even this coming week and get to verse 36. And he gives us some more portraits. These are more obscure. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. 
the world was not worthy of them. That's, a, that's a, such an intense line. It's like these people that lived by faith and were willing to die for the gospel, the world is not even worthy of these people. I read, I don't know if you read this, I read uh, this morning where just in the last week or so, 46 Christians have been martyred and executed uh, in Nigeria by this radical Muslim group. And, and what the writer of Hebrews would say is, it's okay, the world is not worthy of those martyrs. It's like a, a, a really powerful statement about what active faith looks like in the face of persecution. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. So many unnamed who have paid the ultimate price. Hebrews 11 would say that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the evidence of their faith. The persecution gives evidence of true faith, the fact that they stood firm in the face of persecution. I'd like to use um, a quote by an early church father named Tertullian. The quote is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church has grown and flourished anytime she's been persecuted. This is a good word for us right now because we're living in a time of, if not great persecution, great ridicule to those of us who would hold fast to the orthodox historic teachings of the Bible. If you're going to take a stand and say, I believe that the word of God is just that, it's the word of God, and that to disobey it or defy it is to disobey or defy our creator. We're living in a day and age where if you do that and you take that stand, you will at least be ridiculed and that what that'll look like is being canceled, losing a business, it could affect your livelihood, and at worst, it could cost you your life. And he's laying out examples for us that God has used those who would be willing to be persecuted, endure whatever it takes. That second layer of portraits is not people who are providing these historic, like history-shifting examples of faith, like Samson, like David, but he's saying there are people that we don't even, why don't we mention their names, people whose blood has been spilled so that the gospel would advance and the gospel has advanced. People that go to bed praying that they don't get by, bit by a snake and the gospel has advanced. People who wonder if they'll be cast in prison for the proclamation of the gospel in a hostile world and the gospel has advanced. He's like, hey, guess what? The Christian call to action is not always going to be comfortable. And faith is always going to drive you towards gospel activity because the gospel doesn't call us into static Christianity. It calls us into dynamic movements of faith where we act on what we say we believe. We move forward. We impact the world. We shine the light. Whatever platform you've, you've been given, God's going to give you from that platform, whether it's work or family or whatever influence he's going to give you that platform, then you're going to be faithful with it by using that platform to advance the gospel. May we live with such faith that we see the Lord come through in our own lives and use us in ways we can never imagine to advance the gospel in our generation. We come to chapter 12 in our final two verses. He says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says, therefore, which we know is always a connector word. So based on these portraits of faith, so we've got this working definition of faith and all of its characteristics that we unpacked last week. And, and then tonight we've seen further portraits of faith, some very prominent and well-known, some more obscure that give us working examples of faith. And he says, therefore, just tells us there's going to be something to respond to or to apply in our lives. And it's this, in response to these two big things, there's another picture being painted. The picture is this in verse one, we're surrounded by this large cloud of witnesses. And what he's saying to us is this, because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the things that trip us up or hinder us or keep us from moving forward. Let us lay those things aside and do our part to advance the work of the gospel in our generation. He paints the picture of the great cloud of witnesses. And a lot of commentators will, will point that to the gladiatorial arena. They'll say, this is like as Christians in the arena would have been surrounded. He's saying, he's, a lot of times the picture is painted that you've got this arena full of the martyrs and the witnesses. It's this imagery of we're living out the Christian life and we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. But I think that illustration falls short. I want to, I want to tell you the illustration that I think makes more sense to me. It's this, about a few years ago, we went to the state track meet and uh, I think it was uh, Tuck sophomore year, went to state track meet, I think in the, in the four by 100, our boys finished like fifth or sixth. It was, I think it was maybe the highest that, that the team had ever finished. Well, the next year he changed schools, Tuck transferred schools. And there was a team that had been faster than us in the four by 100 all season. And we, could, we, could, we never had times that we posted ahead of them. And then at the state meet, we beat them. And I remember what made the difference was the smooth execution of the handoff of the baton. Y'all have all seen, the, y'all have seen how the relay works, right? It could be a four by one, four by two, four by four, four by, I think, I don't know, like, but it's four people. And they take this little lightweight aluminum maybe or titanium baton. They run and then there's a window in which that baton has to be handed to the next runner. What he's saying is the baton has been handed from Joseph to Moses, from Moses to the people of Israel, to the judges and the kings and the prophets, and David has been faithful, and Samson's done his part, and the martyrs in the early church have done their part, and now our generation is being handed the baton. Are we going to run by faith and do our part to advance the gospel and be faithful as the church of Jesus Christ? Are we going to do our part as we run our race. And he says, Jesus is the one who will perfect our faith. We heard last week that he gives us faith. Now we'll see that he also preserves it and grows it and even finishes it. He says that Jesus endured everything and took his place in the throne of heaven. Jesus finished his own earthly race, declaring it to be finished. Would he cheapen or compromise that by not finishing what he started in you and what he started in me? He is called the pioneer or the one who went before us as the ultimate and supreme example of faith, but also as the one in whom we place our faith. We trust in the finished work of Jesus, but we also look to the future promised work of Jesus. And it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a statement about, that tells us two things about Jesus. Number one, to be seated, we've learned in our study of Hebrews, means the work is completed. 
He sat down signifying the work is completed. Salvation is provided. The promises are intact. The future is secure. The second thing it tells us is that his is a position of authority. His is a position of authority. So we put our faith in a Savior who has authority over all things. All things. So let me give you a final application and conclusion in our last five minutes. Final application and conclusion. To live by faith means to keep your eyes on Jesus, to simply be faithful. This week I would challenge you and I would challenge myself that every single day you have a chance, you have an opportunity when you got to get up in the morning to fix your eyes on Jesus and to be faithful to him. To be faithful to him. It's like so simple, even a caveman can do it, right? This is, this is caveman theology. I like to call it tailgate theology. Is it like, like drop the tailgate, sit down, let's talk about Jesus. Where's the complexity in it? Man, just look to Jesus, read the word of God and study the person and work of Jesus. Talk to Jesus, understand who he is and what he's done and just be faithful to Jesus. Don't, don't make it harder than it's gotta be. The second application is this. When you fail or falter, just get up and keep going. You haven't been called into perfection. You've been given faith that should lead to action and faithfulness. So when you fail or make a mistake, keep going. Don't live in self-condemnation. Don't live in self-defeat. I've heard it said that truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just have to turn it loose and it will defend itself. But at the same time as Christians, we can articulate the answers to the greatest questions the world will ask. The Christian worldview and proofs of the gospel are the most defendable system of thought or belief in the world. At the end of the day, there is undeniable proof for the resurrection of Jesus and the creation of the universe. There is much greater evidence than evidence for Darwinian evolution or any other pagan religious answer for the universe. That's another conversation for another time, but to just rest assured and test that assurance through deep study that Christianity offers the only sensible, only historically accurate, only scientifically supported, only philosophically authentic proofs for the origin of man and the universe and the redemptive story of salvation provided by a God who interacted with man by becoming one of us, conquering sin and death and hell and the grave and doing so by resurrection and we have proofs of that resurrection but but ultimately we live by faith in all of that we live by faith unashamedly faith in what is unseen and what the writer of hebrews calls here invisible the examples laid out for us the portraits of hebrews 11 inspire and encourage and motivate us the agnostic the atheist, the Darwinian, the evolutionist, the existentialist, the pagan, the Christian, and I mean you and I and every other faith. I mean all people live by faith. They all live by faith in something that can't be seen. So many questions are left unanswered in every humanistic or secular worldview. Each of those worldviews demand that a person live by faith or they live by confusion. The question for you and I tonight is what will we place our faith in? What will you place your faith in? May we place our faith in the sufficient and authoritative work and word of God and in the completed work of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus 
and in his covenant promise to return one day so that we might rule and reign with him in an eternal reality. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight you'd take the examples of faith, the realities of faith, the authority of your word, and you'd give us hope in your promises, confidence in what you've done, and help us to live by faith with clarity and boldness the same way that the examples we saw tonight in the text did. The same way that for some of us, godly parents or friends or mentors have. I pray that we would run our leg of the race with the baton of the gospel in hand, with the word of God advancing the message of the gospel so that people might know the hope that they have available to them through Christ Jesus. Thank you for the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Thank you for people that were willing to die for what they had seen to be true. Thank you for the evidences laid out in creation that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above show forth your handiwork. Thank you that you've proven so much through the imprinting of a moral understanding in the heart and mind of every human. But Lord, ultimately, please give us the faith to walk not by sight, but by what we know to be true because what you've woven into our hearts and minds. I pray that the gospel would be the great motivating, driving factor in our lives this week. And I pray that if there's anybody here tonight, as there certainly must be, that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that by recognizing who you are and what you've done and putting their trust and their faith in that, I pray that you would draw men and women to yourself tonight. We sing to you now because you're worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.